you do get a sense, though, that there's been a level of panic and disorganization within the Kremlin that we really haven't seen much over the many, many years that Vladimir Putin has been. There was always sort of this idea that they would just laugh it all off. They gaslight their their critics. You know, they don't care. They're rich. You know, they've stolen billions from the Russian people. They don't care. Put their enemies in jail, kill civilians. They don't care. They never have. Uh, but you don't get that impression much anymore. They're losing this war, at least on the battlefield. They may not have lost it elsewhere, but they're losing it on the battlefield. Um, you know, they've been attacking Ukraine's infrastructure and civilians because to try to plunge the country into the cold and dark this winter, because that's the only way their otherwise absolutely horrific military can do anything. I mean, they've been beaten up by a country far smaller than they are, a force that they had no respect for going in, figured they would march in there in a few days. They have not. They're losing. That's why they're acting like, you know, that's why they're acting like war criminals again, killing civilians and the elderly and women, because that's what they do. That's the Russian way. Um, but its military leaders are under fire these days for their failures. The country's launched that partial mobilization, which was also a bit of a disaster. Apparently it's improved, but it's been a bit of a disaster, sending people running to get out of the country instead of going to die on the front lines in Ukraine. But what exactly is going on inside the country right now? And more importantly, what's going on inside Putin's military and intelligence services? Not only did they fail to predict what would happen when they invaded Ukraine, they failed to predict how much pushback they would get from a Ukraine better trained, better motivated, and now with some of the best weaponry that uh, around from NATO allies. So there is no better person to walk us through this than Andrei Soldatov, because he's been reporting from Russia, originally now in exile in London, uh, and facing trial in absentia for, quote unquote, spreading fake news, quote unquote, in, in Russia. He's been spent, he spent years reporting on the security services, so he has these amazing, amazing contacts within the intelligence bureaucracy, within the military, all across the spectrum. Uh, again, he's in exile in London. He's also co-author of a book that I highly recommend called The Compatriots, The Brutal and Chaotic History of Russia's Exiles, Emigres, and Agents Abroad. You can find his reporting at agentura.ru. And as I mentioned, he's also about to go on trial in absentia for violating stringent new Russian information rules surrounding reporting on the war, don't call it a war, in Ukraine. And Andrei Soldatov joins me now from London. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me back. Uh, last we spoke, um, we were heading into what felt like a different time in the war in Ukraine, that Russia had finally agreed that this was not going to be short, but something far more conventional. Four months later, uh, it feels like it's been really nothing but failure since for the Russian military. What's going on inside and how much blame is going on inside, do you think? Yes, uh, you are absolutely right, and especially when uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, started, uh, that caused a lot of uh, ang uh, anger among the Russian military and uh, and the Russian society. But I would say they might blame some people in the military, but they do not criticize Vladimir Putin for that. And also, they accepted the idea as a big concept that uh, Russia is now is a besieged fortress, and uh, it's not only about the Russian army fighting the Ukrainian army in Ukraine, but it's about the whole of NATO and uh, maybe the whole of, of the West. And if you fight such a formidable fool, uh, you might expect some failures. That's uh, the narrative that lots of people accepted. Is the, is the, is the war itself still as popular as it was amongst uh, amongst people? I know it's hard to gauge, but is it, with the mobilization, for instance, we figured there might be a shift there. Has there been? 
I would say that uh, on a personal level, uh, yes, we see some changes and uh, lots of men, they decided to leave and uh, we see uh, lots of desperation and people are trying to uh, make it out of the country using all kinds of means, including boats to Alaska. But nevertheless, I would say in general, lots of people in the country are still quite supportive of the war. And uh, now uh, you have not only the feeling that it's, uh, it's about this besieged fortress and the West has been always against us, uh, but also it's about the Russians getting killed. And uh, also in many, in many small towns, you have somebody who, who, uh, who was killed in Ukraine. And the people tend to blame the Ukrainians, but not the government and not Putin. And I think the problem is here that there is a lot of fear in the Russian society. Essentially, it's much easier to blame the Ukrainians than to blame Putin, because if you uh, raise your voice against Putin, you can uh, end up in jail very quickly. As you know, right, as you know all too well, given the circumstances you're in, we could talk about that in a bit. I was, tell me about the mobilization, because from afar, it seemed like a very, very big move uh, and one that could go, and it seemed to have been chaotic and badly planned. And um, But within the country, how is it received and how is it going now? Because it's been a while since it was announced, not that long, but a, but a bit of time. Uh, yes, and we have some conflicting uh, versions of uh, what is going on and what is what's going to happen next. Like we have some regional governors, including the mayor of Moscow, saying, "Please be quiet. It's it's all done. Uh, so we finished with our mobilization. That is for now. So you can get home and forget about mobilization." And the problem is that well, not a lot of people actually trust uh, regional governors because it's up to the military. It's not up to the governors to decide where to start and when to end this mobilization. And we still see people uh, mobilized and all the measures introduced by the government to protect the most valued members, uh, say, the society, or maybe if you have some really uh, important companies which are important for the national infrastructure, like telecom companies, these people are not are essentially protected. We have uh, lots of cases of top-notch IT specialists being mobilized and already killed in Ukraine. So it means that uh, the government might say that, no, 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 you are protected from mobilization, but the military would anyway go and, and snatch you from the streets and send you to the army and get you killed, and nothing could be done to save your life or save the lives of your relatives. You know, from the outside, Andre, it's hard to figure out because it feels like it feels like a, 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 a there's no plan. It feels like Russia has no plan for what was going to happen if it didn't work out quickly. And now they're, as you mentioned before, they're now um, have accepted this is like this is going to be a long and more conventional kind of war. But it still feels like there's no plan. What is the goal now for Russia in this war? Well, maybe a big plan is not there, and you are absolutely right that Putin is still trying to uh, pretend that uh, there is no war, but just a special military operation, and you might be uh, punished for using the word war, mm. even now. But nevertheless, I would not be very optimistic here. Uh, the Ukrainian army might make some really uh, big advances and they might capture more territory in the occupied part of Ukraine, like they can actually take Kherson maybe one day. 
And now lots of people in, in Russia, they sort of, they, they almost accepted this as uh, something inevitable, but nevertheless, it would not stop the war. What Putin is um, and was keen to show to everybody uh, is that he would never hesitate to attack uh, civilian infrastructure in, in Ukraine. And given the fact that the winter in Ukraine is extremely cold, that would be a disaster for, for Ukraine, no matter how effective the Ukrainian army uh, would be in Kherson or in Luhansk or in Donetsk, it would not stop the war. Uh, also, uh, all these mobilized people eventually would make it to the front line. And of course, they are not professional soldiers, but the idea of the Russian military is not to use them as professional soldiers, but just to hold the line because the main grievance of the military is that the most professional units of the Russian military, they are misused because there are, there are shortages of uh, ordinary infantry. So you have uh, Spetsnaz forces being used as ordinary infantry. So now we expect these mobilized people getting to the occupied territory to hold the line, to act as just infantry units, and that would, they hope, uh, help them to uh, use professional units in the way they're supposed to be used. Andrei Soldatov is our guest this half hour. He is a Russian journalist now in exile in London, co-author of The Compatriots. You can find that in paperback Paperback coming up very soon in November is the release. You can find his reporting at agentura.ru. And uh, he's about to be tried, I believe, if I've got this right, Andre. I mean, you face some very serious charges in Russia now, as do many uh, journalists who worked there over many, many years. Uh, yes, uh, I was accused of uh, spreading fake news about the war. Uh, essentially, it's about my reporting of uh, of the role uh, of uh, the Russian security services as FSB played in the beginning of the war, and uh, and what is going on with, uh, with the Russian security services right now, what they are doing right now in the occupied territories. That's uh, that's my crime, uh, and I'm facing up to ten years in prison if I ever get back to uh, to Russia. And uh, just yesterday, I got a uh, a note from my chief investigator that he was replaced because he was sent to the occupied territories, which gave me some sense of uh, irony. Wow. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I would say wow. that. Yes, uh, but unfortunately, my the investigation of my criminal case is still there, and I and in this note, uh, a new uh, chief investigator basically said that uh, uh, we prolong the investigation until. January of 2023. So you're not alone. I mean, I, I within you must know dozens, if not hundreds of people now who've left. Um, what is the mood like for all those who've now been exiled, essentially, and some left many years ago, but I imagine there are more and more coming? Uh, yes, absolutely. We had several big waves of, uh, of immigration. Uh, the first one was right after the February 24 when we get some people living in the summer. And of course, the mobilization caused a big exodus of people who before that didn't want to think about politics or didn't want to think about the war. And now it affected almost everybody. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, there is a big feeling of uh, desperation among these people uh, for several reasons. There are basic problems they are facing with. Uh, as you probably know, there is a visa ban in Europe, so it's, uh, it's getting really difficult to get to Europe if you are a Russian citizen. 
And even for me, for instance, it's not possible to go to the Baltics or to, to the Czech Republic or to Finland just because right. I still have a, my Russian passport. It's one thing. The other thing is that the Russian community, political immigration, uh, feels completely confused because it became very difficult for us to find a way how to talk to the Ukrainians. And for instance, I'm a, a journalist and I want to talk about the war and I want to report from Ukraine and I want to try to, to send this message to, uh, to the Russian audience to effectively to stop the war. But unfortunately, it's not feasible. And uh, there is this, this wall between, between the, uh, the Russian journalists and Russian political emigrants and the Ukrainians is getting bigger and, and thicker. Yeah, and, and that can't be, can't be a good thing. Well, where do you see, where do we go now? I mean, we saw some very high-profile attacks recently on the, on the Karch Bridge across to Crimea. Uh, there's talk within Ukraine of you know, wanting to retake Crimea. I mean, these are called nuclear war. These are all conversations that are being had. But what is your sense of the reality of what's going on and where we're headed into the winter? Well, again, I'm not really optimistic here. Uh, it's really, it's, it seems to be, it would be a very, it will be a very bad winter for Russia because uh, the Russian security services, they now they're using uh, Ukrainian attacks on the Russian soil as an excuse to tighten the rules and restrictions and impose more restrictions in the country. That is why we have this martial law and it looks like it's just a beginning. And now we see the military and the FSB playing a bigger role in, 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 in the Russian society and we, have, we see more repressions and I expect more repressions and more repressions. It would be, and it will be really tough, of course, for, for Ukraine because it looks like the, the main strategy of Putin now is to uh, destroy the infrastructure, the national infrastructure of Ukraine to cause more people to flee to Europe and to put more pressure on European governments because the winter would be harsh for everybody. And if you get like two, two, two million of uh, refugees from Ukraine, in, in addition to what you already have, of course, it might cause some, uh, some conversation in Europe, what we're going to do. So the idea of Putin is just to create such a big crisis in Europe that it would force Europeans to start talking to Zelensky, trying to to force him to uh, I don't know to open some 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 uh, conversations, some negotiations with, with Putin. Yeah, I mean we've seen this tactic before, right? Whether it was Syria or we've seen this this tactic is you know, absolutely Ukraine, yes. Ukraine's underbelly, Ukraine's Achilles' heel is the fact that its population is all still there, right beside Russia, and, and um, they're still asking to be protected, but that hasn't come along as quickly as I think obviously they would expect. Any advice to any advice to the to the to the West? I mean, to use the collective West, any advice to the West right now about where this might be going? How how should Putin be treated. We've ostracized him completely. I think that was the right move. Um, but is there ever a chance? Or do you think there's ever a room for any sort of dialogue here? I don't think that any dialogue with Putin and his cronies is, uh, is a good idea. Of course, we would try to pretend that now he's ready to talk and Zelensky is not ready. So you need to put more pressure on Zelensky. That, that is his game. Uh, and obviously, it's, uh, it's, it's a very KGB tactics of uh, splitting the allies. But I think what we need to remember, and it it's might be a good thing for the West to remember, is that there are still people in the, in the country, I mean, in Russia, who are not uh, enthusiastic about the war. And uh, the only chance to, 
well, to win this war is to try to work with the Russian society, uh, whatever left of it. Audrey Soldatov, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.